everybody, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. Today, we are talking about now and then. We're talking about it with our great friend, Chelsea Weber-Smith of American Hysteria. I'll soon be joined by my fantastic co-host, Sarah Marshall. We're all going to get into it. First, I want to let you know that You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. You can get bonus episodes on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good. You can get the same bonus episodes if you want to subscribe at You Are Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate you. You're 95% of how you're funded. If you subscribe in those places, you get uh, bonus episodes like the one that's coming out this week about Jurassic World Dominion. Also, I don't know if you caught wind that Sarah accompanied by Carolyn, actually, is doing a little mini tour for You're Wrong About. Carolyn's going to play some tunes for that, and Sarah's going to do the You're Wrong About thing with guests, etc. And Patreon supporters, obviously at You're Wrong About, but uh, we have the code as well on You Are Good. Patreon supporters and, and Apple Plus subscribers are getting first crack at the ticket sales because they're first come, first served, and they're getting a code to the pre-sale. And we have that code up on our Patreon as uh, does Sarah over at You're Wrong About. So there's many a perk, and we appreciate you for helping make this whole thing possible. You Are Good is also made possible with support from Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. We have an ad partner called Multitude. We talked about them in the introduction to the last episode, the Ratatouille episode. If you are uh, someone who loves this show and thinks that your product would vibe well with our uh, whole thing, please get in touch with us or the folks at Multitude. Let me tell you that this episode is brought to you with support from Cornbread Hemp, which offer the first ever USDA organic CBD oils made from Kentucky-grown hemp. They're building on 250 years of Kentucky hemp tradition. Cornbread Hemp continues the Bluegrass State's legacy of delivering the highest quality cannabis products available. Cornbread Hemp is a CBD company based in Kentucky. Their products are flower-only full spectrum, which means no seeds or stems. They're USDA certified organic. Most products are vegan friendly, including the CBD oils and including the gummies. They have all sorts of products, by the way. Check out their website for the full assortment. They're family owned and crowdfunded. All products, again, are made in Kentucky and they're certified by independent labs with reports published right on their website. Go to cornbreadhemp.com and use the code you are good, all one word, for 25% off your order. Finally, we make available playlists that accompany each of these episodes that's linked in the show notes. They are uh, inspired by the conversation. They're inspired by the movie. Check it out. Also, let us know on Twitter or Instagram or on Patreon or wherever uh, what you'd like to hear us cover in future bonus episodes because, um, you know, we'd love to hear from you. I think that's all that we need to talk about with regard to the introduction to this episode. Thanks for being here, everybody. You are good. Let's go channel dear johnny and uh the rest of the gang truth or dare truth are you happy am i happy that's a good question i'm just realizing that i've spent my entire adult life trying to recapture the way i felt the summer of 1970. who are you kidding girls can't play softball what did you say Guide us in our pursuit of the spirit world. Dear Johnny, 
We know you and your mother were brutally murdered. Did you come back to tell us who did it? We're here to help you rest in peace, Johnny. You're pretty good. You know? <laughs> Thanks. And I mean, like, not just for a girl, you know, for a guy. Hey, we have a lot of respect for the dead, okay? Yeah, that's why we're here. Well, Samantha, things will happen in your life that you can't stop. But that's no reason to shut out the world. There's a purpose for the good and for the bad. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Oh my God, it's a movie about nerds that spend their summer looking at old newspapers. It's a movie made for the three of us. Yes, I was just thinking. I was like, gosh, these are the two people I most want to go on a bike trip to a library to look at newspapers with. Uh, and drink bad lemonade with an old Chloris Leachman. Smoke with Brendan Fraser. Yes. Mm. Uh, mm. Yes. Who's? Oh, who's that? Hello. Who's, who, who, that? who? Who? Who goes there? <laughs> who? Who? What are you? A fucking owl? <laughs> is that the ghost of dear Johnny? <laughs> oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> you just do this in character for the rest of the show as the ghost of dear Johnny. <laughs> the greatest heartthrob of the '90s, dear Johnny. Taken too soon. <laughs> who are you? <laughs> well, I'm. Chelsea Weber Smith, and I host American Hysteria. And I am over the moon to be here talking to you about, as I was saying to them, like my DNA is made from Mm. this movie. So I feel very excited to actually get to share that passion. I'm so excited. I had no idea that this was the movie that you Mm -hmm. are made out of. Mm -hmm. So just a quick lore about this movie in particular. We've tried to record this several times. We tried to schedule it for several times, not with Chelsea, but with a past guest who will doubtlessly have for another title at some point soon. But it just has not worked. And this movie gets requested very often and i've started to take great pleasure in just flatly saying no we're not going to cover it Mm -hmm. the only thing that put this on the table for us the only thing that took out of my life the joy of telling people no we're not going to do the movie that you love is that chelsea was like this movie's very important to me and the only person i would say yes to in that case is chelsea (laughs) That's so sweet. And I'm always here to take the joy that you have from saying no to people. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Actually, what really happens is I put this in front of Sarah and I was like, guess what movie Chelsea wants to do? And Sarah was like, well, we'll do it. And I was like, cool. Okay. Yeah. Cool. At first, Alex was like, no. And then he was like, maybe. I said no. Because <laughs> it was you, Sarah. It was you. Well, it helps that we just talked about my girl. And I was like, ah, that really puts me in the mood for now and then. Because I would imagine that now and then was made partly because my girl was so successful. Girl, stand by me, too. Yeah, and stand by me. To that point, like that gets brought up every in like all writing ever about this movie is a girl stand by me. But like the rationale, I get it. But it's nine years later. Mm -hmm. It's just not how Hollywood operates is to go like we had a hit. Nine years ago, let's do it in a gender <laughs> way. And I'm sure, I'm sure that happened a little bit, but it, it is like stand by me multiplied by my girl because mm-hmm. we have a yeah. mm-hmm. there's so much interesting character overlap with several of these girls in Veda. Mm-hmm. Before we go any further into learning the overlapping passions that you two have, and maybe us three, who knows? But before that all happens, Sarah, mm-hmm. what the fuck is this movie about? Okay. 
Now and Then is set in 1970, which makes it very different from My Girl, set in 1972. And it's about four best friends, Roberta, played by Christina Ricci, who is the Joe, Samantha, played by Demi Moore as an adult, and Gabby Hoffman as a child, who is the other Joe, (laughs) Chrissy, played by Ashley Aston Moore, who's the Meg, and Teeny, played by Thora Burke, who is the Amy. And then there's Dear Johnny, who's the Beth. (laughs) And it's about their summer basically trying to do two things, trying to save up $120 for a treehouse. 1970, baby. I don't know how they're making this money also, but anyway. They're painting a garage. That's true. They paint one garage. (laughs) They paint one garage. (laughs) And then it turned out that they were represented by a union and uh, (laughs) they stretched it out. And trying to put back to rest the soul of dear Johnny, the little boy ghost whose spirit they accidentally raised when they were having a seance in the cemetery and also to learn how he died. And along the way, they bond and share their secrets and their aspirations, and they comfort a grieving old man and bond with a Vietnam vet played by Brennan Fraser and see Devin Sawa's tush. Mm-hmm. Full-blown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the frame story is them like 25 years later, and Chrissy is having a baby, and so she's called everyone back to their hometown, and Chrissy and Roberta stayed in town and Samantha and Taney left town and focused on their careers. And I feel like it's like trying kind of too hard to have a moral. And I imagine someone in a studio was like, what's the moral? What's the theme? And then had to be more say like five themes. And they were like, great. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really sweet. And I cried. I was texting Alex as I was watching. I got two minutes in to this movie and then it started doing the thing where it's like panning over people's belongings that signify what their lives are like while playing like the really lovely score which I love when they do that and this music just makes me cry so I texted Alex and I was like I'm crying two minutes into this movie and I don't even know what I'm crying about (laughs) just human ephemera yeah that is worth crying about it is. It really is. Excellent. So I think the best place to start probably is just out of my deep curiosity mm-hmm. about Chelsea, why you consider this a DNA movie, why this is steeped into your essential being. Okay, let's see. So it came out in 95, which would have made me seven. And I don't know at what point I watched it, but it was one of those movies that my best friend and I just watched again and again and again and again and again. And I was so into seances and I don't know if this was like a product of now and then or me seeing myself in now and then. But I was definitely the kid that showed up to every slumber party ready to light candles, pop out the Ouija board. (laughs) I got kicked out of a house once for doing it by a a afraid Christian parent. (laughs) Yeah, just uh, screamed at. Listen, you got to stay vigilant. That's totally the opening act of a Kirk Cameron movie. Sometimes I think I kicked off the satanic panic. I'm sure you did. (laughs) Kirk Cameron as well. Um, So, yeah, I guess Samantha was always my character. And I do want to do our sun rising moon signs with the girls. Yes. (laughs) 
which we'll do eventually. But Samantha was very much a character that I related to deeply. And I had divorced parents. Not a ton of people had divorced parents when I was that age. And uh, yeah, I just feel like there was something so special, too, about the Crazy Pete storyline that was very instrumental in my empathy, I think. And Mm. I don't know. There's just something about that old man riding his bike at night because no one wants to see him. And the way that Samantha bonds with him is just really special. Mm. She's like, I know about pain. Hank Azaria wore my dad's shirt. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bug. Bug. (laughs) God, Hank Azaria is so good in this movie. His hair is a delight in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Always and forever. But yeah, and I think there's a lot of gender stuff in this movie. Yeah. And like gender stuff that was accessible to a kid, I guess, in that time in 1995. Yeah, like you're pretty good and not just for a girl. You're pretty good for a guy. Yeah. That's my favorite nice <laughs> right. line. Yeah. That is beautifully messy. I love it's it. It's good. By Devin Sawa. By Devin Sawa. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that brings us to like Roberta's character, which would probably be my rising sign (laughs) but Roberta you know tapes down her boobs is not wanting to turn into a woman has a ton of brothers and yet in a key moment which separates gender from sexuality is really into Devin Sawa and kisses Mm. him on a swing so I think that there's something fun about that and actually something interesting is I believe this to be true is I'm Arlene King who wrote this movie who also wrote Pretty Little Liars Another conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think she intended Roberta to grow up to be gay. Yeah. And the studio nixed that. Does that sound right? Did yes. you read that anywhere? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it seems like they just white outed yeah. that over in a couple of places and were like, and we're done. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, what was your take on her, the inventory of where her man technically is? Yeah. So they have this establishing setup where Chrissy is saying what everyone's life is like. And she's like, Roberta lives in sin with her boyfriend. And I was like, mm-hmm. my head canon is that Chrissy has heard of, but never seen Roberta's boyfriend, <laughs> Doug. And that he's always busy. That, that Doug, he's just always off doing something or other. Yes. And Roberta's just playing sports in the street. Totally. It's so, like, Roberta's so well known for playing sports at any moment yep. that a pedestrian is walking by and is like, do you want to play ball in the least convincing manner possible? Like he's going to throw it and she's like too busy with all my groceries. Not right now, but like I have a bag yeah. full of groceries right now. She's known for just dropping everything to go play ball with whoever. And what is her job? Obstetrician. Obstetrician. Thank you. Uh huh. Of course. No, I just wanted us to say. Yes. I thought it was. Yeah. Okay. Gynecologist. OBGYN. I don't fully understand it. OBGYN, general practitioner of women's services. She's one of, if not several, of the letters in that acronym. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Two or three, if not all of them. Maybe all of them. And even the slash. But like she, I mean, there's like the part where Teeny, who is the daughter of rich parents who were never there and, you know, she sits on her roof and watches old movies on the drive in in the distance, which is like, oh, my God. Right. Yeah. I love romantic. that. Totally I love it so much. And she knows all the words. So she's just talking along mm. and uh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, well, I lost my train of thought. That's fine. That's all right. 
It's a great handful <laughs> of things to start with. Great. Perfect. Sarah Marshall. Alex Steed. Did you stay moved throughout the entire movie? Like, did you, you got emotional? You got you got warmed up? Did that stay with you? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I really felt invested this whole time. And, you know, there's not many movies that you can watch with this much enthusiasm three times in six months. <laughs> well, there are a lot for me, but not for a lot of people. And <laughs> And I don't know, there was a lot that I had already forgotten was coming. So I was like, oh, my God, it's Kenny Garofalo. Oh, my God, it's Brendan Fraser. Mm -hmm. And I think what I love most about it in totality is that it doesn't feel excessively aimed at either children or adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I saw it on TV when I was like 12 and I loved it then. And then I hadn't seen it until we came back to it this year. And I have loved it equally much. And kind of I think that when I watched it as a kid, I really... Especially seeing it only once, I didn't really get a lot of the poignancy mm. in it. I was more swept away by the idea of like, wouldn't it be great if you had these three friends that you did everything with? But yeah, what I loved most about it, I think, is that it gives such dignity to the lives of 12-year-old girls. Mm. And yeah. also, you know, comparing it to My Girl, like something I like in the comparison there is that My Girl actually spends a lot of time on what the adults are doing and their feelings and like, will Dan Aykroyd find love? And this one is like really not about adults at all. And I love that. No, it's just bookended, really. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. It's also the only way a studio would invest in a movie about four 35-year-old women. <laughs> do we get a ton of those movies now where no. you get like oh, no. not just the women, but the movie that's geared toward both kids and adults like that's it was no. special it kind of gives its dignity i think everything has gotten more segmented yeah i was thinking about movies that like theoretically could appeal to both and like it's since all been relegated to like pixar movies yeah yeah pixar movies which are directed firmly to kids but there's enough in there for adults or like the themes are big enough but the music's really good and yeah. they're pretty and they make you cry but it doesn't sure. do th mm -hmm. but we don't have this much anymore where it's like yeah. a story that theoretically has enough to maintain the attention of both and chelsea i really like what you said because i didn't pick it up until this viewing is you know a joke about us being three people who a movie about protagonists who spend parts of their summer looking at old newspapers is for. But to think about also like what you both do in your work, mm. it's not just that. It's to the point that you brought up earlier, Chelsea, like we go from taking a scary myth, which is crazy Pete, and then humanize him through like actually having a real experience with him. Mm -hmm. And it turns out Part of the reason he's crazy is because, of, or you know, qu heavy quotes, crazy, Boo Radley, crazy, <laughs> is because he is associated with this myth that they're trying to get to the bottom of by like actually researching in the paper. So it's not just like cute illusion stuff that gets to at least how the two of you turned out and how I feel like I turned out. It is like literally the part of the plot is if these girls could have a podcast, they'd be making a podcast that looks and sounds like both <laughs> yes. of your podcasts. I would love their podcast. <laughs> true. I also love how like, I, I wonder, like I love the whole crazy Pete story. Uh, Mentally ill Pete, Charlie, yeah. is the preferred nomenclature dude. We're using the 70s name. Or just like <laughs> Nightwalker. 
Nightwalker Pete. Pete. That's the best. Yeah. Because he's not doing anything. He's just biking around. Yeah. Nightwalker Pete. There it is. <laughs> Definitely not a scary, a scarier nickname. I, I guess imagine Pete, like you're, he's like a character in The Wizard of Oz accepting his new nickname. Like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to see the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> but I like I love the Nightwalker Pete story. But I also wonder if someone at the studio is like, remember in Home Alone when that yeah. scary old man came and rescued a kid at the end? We should you should put that in your movie. <laughs> and I, Marlene King, being like, someday I'll have my own TV show and no one can limit the amount of crazy stuff I make happen. Oh, and she did. <laughs> I did think on some level that I was like, the first couple of times we watched it this year, I was like, eh, this Pete conclusion feels a little shoehorned. But now again, like now thinking about who we're having this conversation with, I'm like, nah, I kind of like it. I like how it comes together. It's nice. Yeah, I like it. Different mood. Yeah. yeah. It's a different mood. Yeah, and I mean, they start with like, occultism even they start with like this idea that they've brought a a spiritual you know being back from the dead and now it's their job to you know to complete this mystery so they can finally lay dear johnny to rest Mm. and through that they i mean it's not exactly like a it's kind of a debunking but it's more like yeah it's more just like uncovering the real story through Mm -hmm. all of these fun little means like you know they go into the attic and they look through all the boxes in the attic and then they bike and they go look at all the old newspapers and uh it feels a little bit like what we do i think but i do wish i looked at old newspapers i know the bottom floor of a library one day we'll go back to that like in new england or something i bet there's a lot of little libraries that you can bike mm, between mm-hmm. and stop at a swimming hole this is no exaggeration <laughs> how i still spend my time at the national public library See? the national <laughs> public library we have a beautiful and then he steals boys clothing no i don't no take it back he does not take it back never never will <laughs> I do spend a lot of time in the special editions and archive section of the National Public Library, and I am uh, often very alone there because there's no one else doing that. So it's a very niche activity. <laughs> That's nice, though. You got to be alone in the bottom floor of a library. It's a church to me. It's my church. Oh, you know, OK, my favorite quote, which is one of those like kind of faux deep quotes that a movie like this might provide us. But I think it has a nice and true message. And that's like interesting because it's from Samantha, grown up Samantha, who is our narrator. We didn't mention that. But Demi Moore uh, is our narrator, grown up Samantha. And she's definitely like very jaded. And she writes these like really weird sci fi novels and has just had a series of failed relationships and just smokes an ungodly (laughs) amount of cigarettes. But she says at one point, as we grow older, it becomes difficult to just believe it's not that we don't want to, but too much has happened and we can't. Mm. And uh, I think that was like, I don't know, every it always gets me because I grew up as somebody that like wanted to believe in so many things and did believe in so many things. And, you know, my dad was very much like a fantastical thinker for better and worse. And so Sam was always really resonated with me in terms of believing in paranormal things and in seances and talking to the dead, but then also kind of like the bigger, nicer parts of spirituality and then how that does get taken from you eventually 
if you, I guess if you let it, but I'm definitely in like a period of having a lot of difficulty believing in things mm. beyond. And so I guess I really relate to kind of her trajectory. So the right in the cluster of when she says that, she also says, or no, 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 sorry, this is based on what Pete had told her and she was inspired mm-hmm. by, where he says, lots of years I was afraid to face people, mostly afraid to face myself. And like she says what you had just said when she's reminiscing and re- remembering that she's finally remembered to tell her yeah. friends that Pete is Johnny's oh, by dad the way. 25 years later. And I, you know, Sam's story was like extra tragic to me this time because like in him saying that and me thinking of her in that context, I was like, because she talks about these failed relationships, so like she never regressed she just never developed Mm -hmm. in that area where she felt like seeing beyond herself like she Mm -hmm. her frames of reference are like thomas wolf (laughs) like she's never drawing i mean she's drawing from her own experience in as much as they're remembering when they're children but like she is carrying the wound in a way that's absolutely resonant in a way that like i didn't start to realize much of this stuff until my mid-30s as well she's like oh i've never let myself fully love because i'm so wounded wounded and damaged from the situation with my father and my father didn't I didn't have the luxury of my father dying he chose to leave mm-hmm. us which like again at that time was much more of an anomaly and I found her like even more as an adult even more tragic yeah. than I had in previous viewings Ugh, yeah she's so tragic yeah. and then and then when Pete says to her I'm gonna do an actual impression. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> well, Samantha, things are gonna happen to you in your life that you can't stop. But that's no reason to shut out the world. He's not Southern. He's New England from New England. It's beautiful. He's they're in Indiana. You okay, know. sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Parts of it are in the South, I would argue. And then he she says, like, he gave me the only gift he could ever give, which was the lesson it took him a lifetime to learn. Ugh. Right? Yes, yes. Ouch. And then she like forgot it in her other poncho for 25 years. <laughs> then she remembered right when she passed the sign for the Gaslight Edition. And she's like, holy shit, a tenor. Yeah. She's back, baby. <laughs> but I actually really like that because I do feel like my 30s are about like remembering things I learned 20 years ago and being like, oh. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I Same. It's like similarly, I didn't I don't want to leave that. I think that her character is tragic thing hanging mm-hmm. because that is the realest shit it would have been such a bummer if she was like and then from that moment on at age 11 i was very conscious about all the pitfalls that you could fall in because like someone can sit you down at when you're 11 that you trust and love and tell you to your face yeah every important lesson you'll ever learn and you'll be like all right see you later gonna go fuck up on my own i'm gonna go watch rocco's modern life i'm gonna go build a 120 dollar (laughs) treehouse But what? How did they get the money? How did they <laughs> place it in the tree? And they just kept buying Cokes. They were just buying Cokes like it was going yes. out of style. Yeah. 40 cents a brown cow. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I, these are things I don't know if they're well done and nuanced or heavy handed. I have no eye for that really sometimes. But I like that, you know, essentially when they all realize that Johnny and his mom were murdered, like they were murdered in their house by reading this news story. And they all have these varying responses that resonate with their individual like experiences or biases. Mm-hmm. And like Chrissy, who is basically the group's sole Republican, 
is like, oh no, like our our town is safe. And if that can happen here, and she just keeps living in the safe town, like that's her whole thing. And that's what she's in for. And she's lovely. I don't mean to, to talk shit by calling her Republican. It used to mean something different in the 90s. It, it didn't did. mean that you thought a Jewish space laser wanted to homeschool your child. Into- <laughs> <laughs> and then like the other girls who have, you know, issues with or dead parents or divorced parents are faced with that in one way or another. And then Teeny's just like, fuck it, I'm going to Hollywood. None of the, I don't give a shit. Like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go get some, yep. a boob job and make some cash. Mm-hmm. And she does. I'm going to go star in the Mike Nichols film Working Girl. <laughs> Thank God. There's that moment in like people's lives where people talk about it like in the growing up piece of growing up where they talk about it as a loss of innocence. And that's always like a weird thing to me because like innocence is lost if you are already innocent but usually like when that thing happens it usually reverberates and resonates with various things that were already in you yeah Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what we see in their individual responses to realizing just like how fucking wild the dear johnny story is yeah it's like drifters murdered him and his mother in their home yeah and then pete we is worth mentioning was out at the bar so he didn't he wasn't at home i didn't pick that up yeah he says, uh, if I would have been home and not down at that bar. Oh. <laughs> He's talking about being at the bar. He's in Maine now. Yes. Yeah, it's he cool. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's how he says it. It was actually Judd Crandall. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying on different, you know, I'm just trying different things out. Yeah, he felt that he did not save his family because he was drinking at the bar. I also like how he's very similar to Crazy Ralph from... Friday the 13th parts one and two, who is also an old man who likes to ride a bike slowly around town. What's up with that? (laughs) They're like, get one of those. Ride a bike slowly. That's pretty creepy. It's just the noise. It's the the creaking. I remember this is like a Tumblr post, I think. Somebody was like, is there anything creepier than somebody running by with a big smile on their face? (laughs) <laughs> and somebody said somebody walking by slowly with a big smile on their face and then somebody else said somebody walking by slowly with their knees bending the wrong way and spiders pouring out of their eyes with a big smile on their face <laughs> and that's true <laughs> that would be weirder <laughs> I mean speaking of creepy old men and Vietnam War vet drifters played by young men It's fascinating how this movie is about, for another comparison, the kind of blue velvet theme of like the worm and the apple, the bugs in the lawn, the Mm -hmm. violent secrets at the heart of Eden. And yet it's a world totally without sexual menace, I would argue, Mm -hmm. to these characters, which feels like a necessary piece of wish fulfillment. They seem to be kind of in control, Mm -hmm. actually, in a way I've never thought of until you said that, because they're the ones who are spying on the boys who are skinny dipping. Roberta seems to really be kind of in control of the Devon Sawa swing kiss. Maybe not. I'm trying to remember. But you're saying like the sexual menace. It's like Chrissy's out there talking about, you know, her mom's teaching her that every garden needs a hose to water it. And uh, she says that thing, you know, boo, ah. That's what sex oh, is. Yeah. Next to and the balls. That's the best line in the whole movie. What is that? Oh, yeah. And the balls. <laughs> she's, and as I find out to Sarah, like she composes herself like she's on Broadway when she says that. Mm-hmm. And the balls. Yes. So good. I think it's also really nice that like all of these four main actresses have a ton of range and I feel like these roles are treated maturely in the script and the production. Like it feels like it's important 
that they get to sort of express a lot of different emotions and dynamics and kind of go deep. Uh, yeah, I guess feel like those kind of roles aren't written for 12-year-old girls mm. again. No, I don't really think so. Well, to, to your point, Sarah, about what you were saying earlier about the lack of menace, we remarked on this in the Dick episode as well, where there was like a little more menace because they're constantly yeah. getting chased in one way or another. Because Kissinger's around. Yes. Yeah. But it's not like you're not like waiting for like an unsettling shoe to drop in that movie. And like similarly here, yeah. like this movie ultimately is about kids seeing the world unprotected by adults for the first time because all of their little adult bubbles are breaking down in one way or another either by way of like the family or they're getting old enough to see and recognize it like whatever those things are and it's like a very biblical thing to have it be like the curtain is torn back and like the innocence is lost and you're in a shitty way forever now like you had it good and now the innocence is gone and in this it's just kind of like they get that first taste and it's eye-opening for all of them in a way that like it shapes where they land later. Mm-hmm. And it's not presented as like knowledge is forbidden fruit. It's presented <laughs> as they all see a little behind the adult curtain and they're given what they need to build upon for the rest of their lives, which is very exciting. And in that way, without like all the, I agree, like all the morals that feel a little tacked on feel totally secondary next to the fact that it's this illustrated time in which they're able to have these revelations and it doesn't kill them or get them hurt. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a liminal time. Yes. Between two worlds. Yeah. Yeah. That's the 12 year old journey. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Speaking of that age, it also reminds me of it. I was gonna, I was hoping you'd bring it up. Which is another movie that tells us not to climb into storm drains. So (laughs) yes, I was so hoping. I mean, to me, the most interesting feature in it is that it's about Stephen King's it. Of course. Not, you know, Nora Roberts's it is that it's about a bunch of 11 year olds who just are free to ride their bikes around their cursed hometown and do whatever the hell they want as long as they're home by seven and there's only a curfew because of all the child murders lately. Well, and there's also this feature in it where only children can see it. Mm. Chelsea, you can probably describe this better than me. Adults just kind of just don't notice it. They just literally can't perceive it like they can't see the blood yeah so they just don't perceive this thing which i guess is because they need the fear that comes from fantastical thinking that only kids can provide Mm. and but i think Hmm. what's really interesting about that comparison just came to me is like in it the book especially the monster is not really pennywise right it's like capitalism racism Mm -hmm. homophobia this cursed town that's cursed in ways that are actually not magical really Mm. except obviously there is a literal clown is there (laughs) but anyway so now and then it's like the menace i guess is crazy pete and this paranormal story but their menace is the difficulty of growing up as a girl in 1970 and you know you even get into like the vietnam war because we we didn't even talk about brendan Fraser. you brought him up but that's kind of another place where as you mentioned before the girls all have their own reaction to brendan Fraser. fraser i always say fraser but it is fraser is that right it is fraser i'm almost positive but i'm sure he'll answer to either yeah misinformation machine over here but um (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, and the ways that they respond or so because they're each an archetype. I think we could consider them Jungian archetypes in a way. I will consider them Jungian archetypes. You will. You'll do Thank it. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> you'll do that for you'll do that for us. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and like yeah, Roberta sits there. They all get cigarettes, right? That's a big thing. Is mm-hmm. like, what do you do with the cigarette? I remember that so well because I got my first cigarette when I was probably 12 years old, and it was just like. There was just something, and I know I'm not condoning smoking, but there is something that happens when you're a kid and you get to do something like that. And some older non-parental figure who's cool is providing you that opportunity, which is all bad. These are bad things, too. Just do something else that's forbidden. Having an adult buy you some pirate's booty. (laughs) Well, they're but they're but they're they're bad, but they're also it doesn't stop them from being formative when it doesn't cross a line. Exactly. Yeah. And Brendan Fraser does not cross that line. I mean, I guess the cigarettes but whatever yeah he doesn't cross the line he could cross for sure yeah, yeah absolutely of being a murderer yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> he does he does not look he's just a dirty old hippie back from vietnam who hates the war and and that's another thing is you know chrissy's like but you guys are winning right you know and he's like there's no winners I love like that. that's not what's happening here forget what your parents say yeah and it's such a nice moment i think and like He's maybe 19 because mm-hmm. he just mm-hmm. had gotten over and then got shot. And wow. it was a blessing that he got shot. So he's a kid like he's in, the, in between between them and the adults that they're like learning yeah. from, which which is like he's kind of like a Dickensian ghost messenger that can mm-hmm. be like, yeah, they're all wrong. Like everything, everything yeah. everyone's saying is wrong. It's not true. Those people who are slightly older, but in my mind, not fully adult, but could have been adults as far as I was concerned, were hugely, hugely formative Definitely. for me in one way or another when I was a when I was a kid. Like that's where I got I felt like 100 percent of my education. <laughs> Yes. Mm. Yes, 100%. He was like a harbinger, kind of. But like of, you know, growing up Mm. isn't going to feel as good as you think it's going to feel. You know, he comes and he's like, no one's winning. Vietnam's pretty fucked Mm -hmm. up. Like, this is like a bad thing. I'm glad I got it's so fucked Mm -hmm. up. I'm glad I got shot. Because it's easier to be here. It seems like historically, like in larger media and entertainment, Indictments of Vietnam are always like separate from indictments of America, but like America yeah. like made Vietnam yeah. like it was like an outlier. Like we had some good wars and then this bad one came and then it was only always bad ones from there on out. And then maybe the prior ones were bad, but it's kind of cool that this movie for kids is like, you know what? Fuck America. <laughs> Brendan Fraser says fuck him. So here's a genuine question. How fringy was it to be against the Vietnam War in 1970? Like in a town like this? Well, yeah, context is important, too, because I feel like it's like it had become by the 90s like a fairly mainstream, totally accepted thing. Yeah. When it was still going on, was it like fringy? Yeah. Yeah, like everywhere. I mean, I like to the point where Nixon overwhelmingly got reelected in 1972. Right. Yeah, that's very late. That's when it's like, oh, boy, like, I feel like that was at least around the time that it was mathematically certain that it was unwinnable. Totally. It's still extremely like Chrissy is the most in tune with America generally as a character. But I think especially at this time in 70, it requires like a face to face conversation with a Brendan Frazier to actually understand what's happening. Or Nixon himself in the case of Dick, I guess. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) 
just love that movie. Would you agree with that, Chelsea? I don't mean to commandeer that no, answer. No, no. I actually, when realizing that I don't, I guess it just has to depend demographically a lot, mm-hmm. obviously, but I don't think it was mainstream at all. I, I wonder how much of it was like thinking back upon it, sort of like yeah. the war in Iraq or Afghanistan. Like it took a long time for people to accept the problems with it, the fact, you know, the illegality, things like that. I think it took a while for the fervor and like the need for it to be Mm -hmm. right because it's like we needed it so bad to be right because we couldn't be the villain, right? We we couldn't be these torturing Americans that were harming others. Yeah. And we couldn't have already lost so many of our children to it. Yeah. Yeah. Sunk cost. Yeah. The thing that existed day to day was the out of context reportage, right? Where it's like Mm -hmm. X amount of people have died. You have Muhammad Ali speaking out against it, like publicly as like a public pop sports figure. Like you have people speaking to these Mm -hmm. things, but I don't think we realize like where the tide is until at least a decade to two decades of definitely like a decade of retrospect, particularly in popular media to go like, oh, yeah, we you know, because like uh, like every movie that came up from the late 70s until like 1989 was some like someone going like, oh, yeah, it was actually pretty fucking bad. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it's and it's so present in movies in the 80s and 90s. And it's such a fixation which makes sense because I feel like it is a lot of people who were young at that time growing up and getting to make movies like Oliver Stone. Yeah, for sure. And I remember watching a lot of those movies like with my friends who were a little bit older whose parents were Vietnam vets. Mm-hmm. So, like right now, it seems like almost like distant history. But in the 80s and 90s, when like you had a good deal of like Vietnam vets as your friend's parents my dad was older and it was a vet of the korean conflict but like yeah it was like very much a part of the conversation because you had the filmmakers there but you also just had a generation of people who are going to be watching these movies who was going to resonate with in some way yeah yeah that time man i don't know i grew up uh my best friend's dad he was a vietnam vet and then his best friend was a huge influence on me and then the guy that my dad was best friends with was a vietnam vet who lived in the woods who built this really cool place in the woods Mm. we got to go to all the time so i just feel like and this is like too sweeping but there's just something i've just learned a lot Mm. from the vietnam vets in my life for sure good and bad lessons very very hard scary lessons Mm. and like very heartfelt lessons too yeah there's something i think they just did a really good job with his character um in that short tiny brendan fraser 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 (laughs) brendan fraser's character in that short amount of time yeah no i love that that's in the movie yeah it could have lacked nuance and it didn't yes it definitely could have lacked nuance but it was subtle Thank God. A lot of this movie is luckily subtle for the most part, I think, at least. (laughs) It's one of Sarah's and my favorite genres, which is a bag of vignettes. Yes. Absolutely. It is. I was going to use the vignette word as well. Uh huh. It's a sampler. Yeah. Couched in other vignettes about other people. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, we also haven't talked about the other mythos around this town, which is Janine Garofalo. As a witch. Sarah, can you just catch us up on our Janine Garofalo score count in the overall show? Yes. Thank you for asking. So at the time you're listening to this, we will have put out, I believe, three Janine Garofalo related episodes in six weeks. Mm. Wet Hot American Summer, Ratatouille, and Now and Then. So we're having a real like 
Garofalo Palooza. <laughs> It's Garofalo Go Go. Chelsea, tell us about Janine Garofalo's character and uh, what it means to you. You guys got to do Romy Michelle one day, too. Oh, for sure. Oh, my God. It's incredible that we haven't. We love talking about gals on the road. Oh, yeah. Chelsea and I once did a lot like Twitter live stream just of us just stream of (laughs) consciousing at each other about Romy and Michelle. It was great. (laughs) That sounds so nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So Janine Garofalo's character, her name, I believe, is Willadine. So she plays this like goth before goths were really a thing. I guess maybe like a Stevie Nixian goth. Yeah. When were goths created? I don't know. By Cersei. Like Bauhaus, right? Oh, yeah. Like Susie and Bauhaus and like it was after this time as we know them as a pop cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Well, and what do we know about her? She's like, uh, she works at the diner. She's always bringing him Cokes Mm -hmm. and is like really, I think just likes to fuck with them and kind of just acts witchy calls them boys i love that yeah calls them boys which is so funny and she's like we're girls um and then she goes i know (laughs) 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 her acting is so funny and uh those just rumors about her that she um teeny likes to she's the like classic young about to be star who likes to lie a lot and Mm -hmm. so she's talking about knowing that her teacher suffered a heart attack after she saw Janine Garofalo have a voodoo doll of him. You know, and it's just complete bullshit. Mm-hmm. But uh Teeny started the satanic panic. Yeah, she did. She did. <laughs> but it's interesting to me because she doesn't really get demystified the way that the rest of this story does with Dear Johnny and everything. It's just kind of hmm. like she just exists as this town witch that uh i don't know may or may not have to do with anything going on or is she just like a side character completely well it's it's funny because like crazy pete is a person who everyone has the wrong idea about and then gets redeemed right and Wilhelmina, what's her name yeah. Will, Will, uh, Dean. <laughs> she's the same but gets no redemption yeah exactly there's just kind of like they ran out of kids to endanger. But I'm glad she doesn't show up like wearing a different outfit like she's changed and is no longer a goth because she found love or something. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. I'm a handful of years older than you. I think I'm five years older than you both. And so it just puts me at a different age for when this came out. Like, a, mm-hmm. you know, I was like 12 or 13. I didn't see this when it came out. But Janine Garofalo... Bobcat Goldthwait, Dennis Leary, all Boston comics, which is mm. interesting, but like just like quote unquote like alternative comics in one way or another being everywhere on television were always just mm-hmm. like incredible beacons of hope, you know, because like they yeah. it felt like they were seeing stuff that other people it felt like it, you know, it's like you're like, mm-hmm. oh, they are seeing the <laughs> same thing and they're repeating it back. And like you're not entirely alone for seeing the world in the way that they're seeing the world. And Dennis Leary is like the town historian. <laughs> totally, totally. The like outraged town historian. Yeah, those people at that time or beacons were really important characters at that time. And I felt like, you know, they must have had friends in these directors who were like, yeah, I know comedy's hard. Here's a here's a check. Yeah, they're very definitively Gen X. Yeah. I also love how the term treehouse dollars enters at least Chrissy's vernacular. She's upset that they're going to spend 10 treehouse dollars (laughs) on a tarot card reading. Oh, my God. Oh, that's right. They get a tarot card reading. How are these girls making money? Those are not cheap. $10 in 1970? You get a car for that. Chelsea. Yes. (laughs) Hank Azaria. Yes. 
Bud. Bug. Bug. Yeah, he's <laughs> Hank Azaria plays the first man that Samantha's mother brings home post separation with her dad. And her metamorphosis into just being a sex pot. Nancy Sinatra specifically. Yeah, yes. exactly. And the boots are made for walking plays when they all look out the window <laughs> and see the mom and they're just like, Samantha, what's going on with your mom? And uh, yeah, so she brings very lovable Hank Azaria as Bud. He has good stepdad material, I gotta he's say. He's such good stepdad material. He's just like a total hayseed is the only issue. Also, he's not Samantha's dad, who seems awful. But yeah. some of us are defined by an early desire for bad daddy to want them. And the less said about that right now, I guess, the better. Bad daddy. Is this the same year we see him in Birdcage? Birdcage was 96, I think. Next year. Mm -hmm. This is his iconic era. This is his iconic era. His hair is like made of liquid metal, like T-1000. It's fascinating. And he keeps going. (laughs) (laughs) And let's not neglect the fact that he's wearing a gigantic ascot. Yeah. Never neglect the ascot. (laughs) That's a pretty scarf, bug. (laughs) (laughs) That little girl is so cute. She's like, that's Bruce Willis's daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that lady. Demi and Bruce's daughter. Wow. And I just read that the cast was like weirdly, the girls, the young girls were weirdly into Pulp Fiction at this time. Of course they were. So it must have been, I wonder if they had any chill around any time Bruce Willis might have been around with regard to their Pulp Fiction fandom. (laughs) I wouldn't. And then we also have like, the Cloris Leachman parts, mm-hmm. who is Samantha's grandmother, who's just so upset about the divorce. <laughs> she comes over and is banging on That's the wall and just saying, yeah, just saying, you have to go to him. Yes. <laughs> it's like grandma like, home invasion. Yeah. And they all hide under the table. And they're like, why are we hiding from grandma? I assume she's like so <laughs> uncomfortable about telling them about a child dying that she just like... It's weird, though. It doesn't quite make sense because it's like, God, Grandma, you planned this kind of poorly. I guess memory issues. But it's like she is helped out by the hand of God when her friends come to pick her up right when she gets asked about something she doesn't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And which is so cool because it's her husband, Samantha's grandfather, yeah. who I think we can assume because once they go and look for the Dear Johnny information, they find the newspaper, but it's been ripped out of mm-hmm. the archive. And I think we can assume that it was actually Samantha's grandfather because when they get up in the attic, they find all the stuff he collected about the murder. Mm-hmm. So there was something yeah. about him being really interested in that murder that isn't really brought up more, but it, it's pretty cool that it was samantha's grandfather that seemed to be somewhat of like even a lore keeper of this yeah it's cool but like hey don't ever steal no a page <laughs> from a institutional archive oh did he do that i didn't put it together that he was the one who took that page i made the leap well i think the leap is good wow yeah that's terrorism that's fucking horrendous there's only one copy of that I was really struck by the scene where they go to the because they go on this long bike journey, this long odyssey, where along the way they see a guy's penis and the balls. It's like a fun moment in the movie. Don't worry. Yeah, it's a kid's penis. And yeah. Well, shit. Yeah. It's Devin Sawa. <laughs> it's a cool way to see a penis. It's not yes, like a weird. It way. is their um, <laughs> someone who is their age, you know, and they meet a Vietnam vet and share their soda with him and smoke cigarettes and like stop at a roadside soda joint and talk about fake boobs and play truth or dare like 
So much happens along this trip. It feels like this gigantic odyssey. And they get to the library and the one page they need has been torn out. And this Mm -hmm. movie came out in 1995 when I feel like things were still very much the same as in 1970, where if you needed to know it was on that page and it was gone, you were just like, well, I guess I'll just never know. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. Yep. Oh, actually, one thing I wanted to say about the Cloris Leachman part is like, it feels a little, I don't know, like I think probably to this day, if I asked my grandmother Agnes, some info on a child murder she might know about, I think she'd similarly be like, no, we're not going to talk about that because- Let's mop. It wasn't until the 80s just catching people up on some history that uh, a lot of people talked about child murders all the time. <laughs> that's true. We we can't get enough of them now. Yeah, people used to bring it up and you'd be like, that's an impolite thing to bring up. We're not going to talk about child murders in this setting. Now you're waiting to get your groceries checked out <laughs> and the magazines you can look at are like, Jennifer Aniston might be having a baby and all these kids got murdered. But Jennifer Aniston will have a baby to replace one of them. (laughs) Oh, you know? Okay, you guys. I feel like something we haven't talked about. You're like, simmer down. (laughs) Yeah, everybody calm the fuck down. I need your inside voices. I like when someone comes on the show and has to keep us in order. (laughs) Uh, Whatever. I just want to make sure that we jam in all the important fucking scenes. You're making a sandwich here. You're making a pita. I only get to do this once. (laughs) (laughs) Softball game. Yeah, perhaps oh, one of yeah. the loveliest girl power vignettes I've ever seen. I liked that. Um, was that a Boston accent? That was a ginger spice. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know, thank I you, know, girl power. <laughs> between the sexes. Uh huh. The softball game. What what hit you? Well, I guess I was a very sporty child, and you know, I really liked playing sports with boys. I would meet up and play like tackle football with the boys, and so I think that was like. A very familiar feeling of no one ever taking me as seriously as they took the boys, even though oftentimes I could match their skills, especially in softball. So I think it was very like uh, fun to watch. And of course, I I this is problematic, but I love a deserved punch. You know, Mm -hmm. I gotta say, like this kid is being so mean to Roberta, who is very good at softball and saying things like, you know, you don't have any manners because your mother's dead and just saying really awful stuff. She shouldn't play softball. She's really mad. She throws down the bat and just starts, you know, punching him in the face. And uh, that's not even the punch I'm interested in as much as like, I guess it's not a punch, but she is fighting him and then they pull her off. Mm -hmm. And then that is when the really mean boy says, too bad your mother's dead. She should have taught you some manners. And then, and then he like turns to walk away and then Sam just like jumps on his back and they all just start fighting again. And it's just like, it's such a beautiful moment of friendship and, and, you know, just how things can change in that moment where you're like, pulling someone off and then the switch gets hit and you're like oh no that's not what I'm doing anymore like the game's changed here and we're gonna jump on this kid's back and you know violence is bad but um so is saying horrible things (laughs) we're living in the era of the deserved punch it's not always bad no sometimes you gotta shut down a Nazi you know sometimes someone says something about your mother who's dead and then suggests that her only role was to keep you in line and you gotta punch that motherfucker in the face absolutely (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea that like 
it takes your friend being hurt. Because I, I think I can stand up for myself okay, mm-hmm. but as mm-hmm. soon as somebody is like mean or fucks with my friend or family member, like there's like a total switch and I get like, I get real intense. Yeah. So um, there are people who could testify that, but I, I don't know. I always uh, found that to be very, uh, very, very, very sweet because it's not really in her character's nature. I don't think until she wants to defend her other friend. And I love that. And then she comes home looking really pleased with herself. Yeah. Too. yeah. And they're all covered in like cartoonish dirt. I love it. <laughs> like swatches. Yes. Swatches. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's carefully rubbed that on her. The one thing I want to make sure that is mentioned, because we've really just hinted around it a little bit, mm-hmm. is this scene where they see the boys who are naked. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the reason why I think it's important is because from any of the conversations we've had so far and any conversations I've seen online, like this is a movie where like a lot of girls for the first time even experience the idea that they might see male nudity at some point. And it's like hinted yeah. at we see their their butts. Devin Sawa reports that they had to wear those socks that some men do, particularly children, uh, if you're doing male mm-hmm. nudity on a movie set, which seems like it was un- uncomfortable. And the last time we had this conversation, I'd, I'd asked what percentage we think of fan interactions Devin Sawa has with someone who just stops him on the street and is like, are you Devin Sawa? And they're like, he's like, yeah. And they're like, you're the first dick I saw. Like how tushy what yeah you're the first tushy. i mean yeah but they a lot of people i think are confused and believe that there's actually nudity in the movie oh wow it's like a mandela effect yeah i wonder what percentage of fan interactions he has is are people who are weird about that scene and i guess 30 percent. yes i'm sorry right with you no no i love that you went for it. yeah totally same i think the same did you guess 30 percent yeah chelsea um i'm gonna go lower <laughs> i'm gonna say okay. Five percent. Okay, oh, that's five. Nice. Yeah. I hope that's the case. If I ran into Devin Sawa, I would not bother him because I don't like talking to people. That's what I believe in. But if I talk to him, I would be like, I love you in Final Destination. That movie is helpful for my anxiety. Thank you for your service. How many people do we think <laughs> have seen Devin Sawa at an airport in 86 their trip? It all depends on how often he flies. <laughs> wow. There has to be at least a couple. No doubt. There's at least be. a dozen. Oh, yeah. At least a dozen. At least. Wow. Well, speaking of death itself, <laughs> who Tony Todd plays in the Final Destination films. Best casting. Chelsea, I feel like the big reason that, that it totally makes sense to me that this movie is part of your DNA is that it's about like the right of tweens to be spooky mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. uncover real truths by having spooky seances in the cemetery. Absolutely. And also there's an exchange I love where, so it turns out they think that dear Johnny's gravestone has been cracked when his spirit was summoned by them. But it turned out that just this guy who works in the cemetery broke it accidentally. And now he's coming in with the new headstone to replace it. And he's like, you kids should respect the dead. And Sam says something like we do. That's why we're here. Yeah. And that also feels to me like a Chelsea thing. Yeah, no, I that's I I think that's really nice that you said that. Yeah, they I and I really like his character too. He's only in it for a minute, but the the guy who yeah. works at the cemetery because yeah, it appears to them they're back doing another séance like trying to lay dear Johnny to rest. So that's another thing is like it's closing out the movie, like it's closing out all of the magical elements and it kind of comes crashing down for them and they did want it to be real in a way, right? I think we all want I was such a ghost hunter. I wanted all those things to be real. So, 
so much. But, uh, you know, it's like that line that Sam says, it's like too many things happen. And I think that's kind of like when they discovered Mm -hmm. that it wasn't this like fun seance journey. It was like a brutal double murder of a family. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, it's uh, coming to terms with a much darker reality that I think does come when you're 12 years old Mm -hmm. and you're transitioning from being able to see things in a magical way to no longer having such a strong ability ability to do that and yeah it's there's a lot here that has to do with I think both our shows and wanting to find the real behind the story but also at the same time not going too far and losing some of the magic of life because it seems like at the end Demi Moore gets a little bit back you know She's swinging on the yeah, swing. From the tree house. Yeah, she's swinging on the treehouse swing that uh, Chrissy ended up getting, and she's never moved out of that house. So they actually get to hang out in their treehouse together and uh, decide that they will make another pact <laughs> that they will always come together when they need each other. Got to renew those pacts, everybody. You got to. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it's like they're looking for this mystical thing, like or this this mm-hmm. thing that's like in the occult, and then they realize that it's not real and they're disappointed like all you know ventures they found who they were in the process of pursuing that thing but then you're also not clear-eyed enough or have the wherewithal you need to realize that that's what happened so you spend the next 20 to 25 years (laughs) realizing that until you all come together again and we saw that for uh we saw that for samantha i'm glad that she finally she finally achieved that. She can finally swing in peace. Yep, as the camera pans over to the sky, mm. I think. <laughs> so Chelsea, or, or whoever wants the answer, really, we know that Crazy Pete is Dear Johnny's father, who, in a movie bursting at the seams with daddies, is the daddy. What about the cemetery worker? Oh, I love him. <laughs> yeah, I love how he's like, hey, you girls shouldn't be playing here. He's very calm. Yeah, yeah, but he's also like, yeah, he's like, whatever. I don't care. He's yeah. like, it's broken because I broke it. That's a refreshing thing. <laughs> a man admitted that he broke it. And he's not like, I'll call the cops. <laughs> yeah. And also that it happened like at the beginning of the summer and now it's like the end of the summer. And he's like, yeah, I had other stuff to do. Yeah. <laughs> this grave is from 1945. Okay. Dear Johnny can wait. That kid's not getting any better. Nope, he sure isn't. <laughs> Sarah, who's your daddy? I think my daddy is Roberta, because when I was trying to figure out why I was crying two minutes into the movie, I love that it starts with Roberta bringing snacks to Chrissy's house. And Chrissy's like, do you have the cheese whiz? And Roberta's like, I do. It's not a memorable interaction. But I guess it was like, ah, Roberta is the kind of friend who would like never forget your cheese whiz. Yeah. Deliver your your cheese whiz and deliver your baby. (laughs) She can take a punch to the face, too, because she fakes her death. And then Chrissy, who's her best friend, gets mad, punches her in the face. And then she's basically like, yeah, I just faked my death. I understand. Yes. And I feel like Chrissy and Roberta have the kind of Meg Joe bond that we see in Little Women, where it's like one is very conventional and is like, don't say Christopher Columbus, Joe. It's swearing that they love each other very much and sort of compliment each other. And yeah, there's like, I mean, they're the two who stay home and there's like a sincerity to them where they just kind of, I think they're both characters who like lay everything out on the table and 
Teeny and Samantha play things more close to the vest or they're like, you know, less gonna just sort of like spill their guts to you necessarily. And yeah, I love Roberta. Roberta's holding the show together mm-hmm. in many ways. My daddy's Bonnie Hunt, just Bonnie Hunt, not even her character. Bonnie Hunt shows up in this movie, just nails it in the 57 seconds she plays Chrissy's mom. Oh my God. Just kicks it in the groin. You just watch her as the character program every neuroses Chrissy's going to have for the rest of her life in one line. If you have a family member like that, you know that Bonnie Hunt clearly does too. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I have no idea what you're talking about, Alex. You know, you know what we should do now is uh, <laughs> what should we do, Chelsea? I think we should do our now and then astrology, sun sign, rising sign, moon sign. I'll start. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And remind us, I have not brushed up in years with bad millennial on what rising sign and moon sign means. My oh, understanding gosh, is yeah. that one is the face you wear to the public. I don't know a ton about astrology, but um, even though we just did four episodes you about just, it. You just did a lot of episodes about astrology. <laughs> but not like it wasn't sun sign astrology. Right, right. They were conveyor belted out of your brain yep. and now you're filling it with more important things. Yeah. Like now and then. Mm-hmm. So yes. uh, sun sign, who you feel yourself to be. Moon sign, mm. your emotional life, rising sign, who people see you as, which everyone's oh, going to be like, that's not what it is. But that's what it is now. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I feel that I'm sun sign, Samantha, probably a moon, Roberta, because I know how to throw a fit. I might be a double Samantha, but sometimes I think I might have a little teeny in there as well. Okay, so my I would say that my rising sign is Samantha because that's how the world sees me. And I think people see me as someone who drives around with a map of Indiana and a carton of cigarettes. Yeah, that's what I tell people Mm -hmm. about you. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And then my sun sign is teeny because I was a 12 year old who spent a lot of time alone pretending to be interviewed about my successes as an adult. And I think my moon, my emotional life is Chrissy because I really identify with that character as like the side of me that is maybe like the most central and childlike that's sort of like bossy and overly programmed by her parents, but also like is often the butt of the joke primarily for that reason but has a really good heart and great taste in decor. Absolutely. (laughs) Alex? My sun is Samantha. My moon is teeny. And my rising is Janine Garofalo's character. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's true. Yeah. Because you you boot up the old podcast every day and you're like, hello, boys. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you, obviously, thank you to Chelsea Weber-Smith of The Great American Hysteria for bringing us this beautiful episode about Now and Then and all of their insights. We are grateful to you, Chelsea. Thank you to Miranda Ziegler for editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lash for producing the beats that make our transition sound so great. Somebody reached out, and I am not kidding. Somebody reached out and was like, there's no website for Fresh Lash. Is this just Alex's wife? And first of all, Carolyn 
is Carolyn Kendrick. That's her whole name who produces the show. We happen to be married, but she is the backbone of the entire show. And <laughs> she has a name, <laughs> which is not Alex's wife, first and foremost. And she happens to not be Fresh Lash, who does have a website and has been making beats since I was 11 years old. And I am a very old man. So this is a person who has been in and of the hip hop community for decades. Uh, and I just want to shine a light on Lesh because you make the transition sound great and you are not a alter ego of Carolyn who produces the show and makes it possible. <laughs> so thank you both. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at you are good pod. You can find us on Patreon. You can find us on Apple and get your uh, bonus episodes there. If you would prefer at you are good plus we appreciate you. Thanks for making all of this happen. Next week, we will be talking about the 2000 Charlie's Angels with our fabulous friend, Nico Stratus. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much, everybody. You are good.